Well, good evening. It's good to see everybody. Uh, tonight we're returning to the little mini-series we started a couple uh, weeks ago. I entitled it uh, Two Questions, because uh, there's two questions that I've been asked repeatedly uh, over the last few weeks when we are in our, in, as we are in, our, in the morning in our study in the book of John. Uh, the first question was, why do we worship on Sunday? Or uh, what's the issue of the Lord's Day? And if you weren't with us, we spent quite a bit of time looking at a variety of different passages to come to an understanding of that biblically. Um, uh, the fact is the church all around the world uh, meets on Sunday. It's uh, not something that uh, a Roman emperor changed. The day of worship is not something the Roman Catholic Church did, uh, changing the day. It's not any kind of conspiracy of uh, men perverting the day without any kind of biblical authority, moving the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday as people uh, um, uh, falsely uh, uh, put forward. Uh, but the church meets on Sunday to worship because that's the day that the person of the Lord Jesus Christ himself set aside to be the day of worship uh, for the church. It was on Sunday. It was uh, on uh, when Christ came, uh, he rose uh, from the dead, uh, and when he rose from the dead, that changes everything in the economy. Uh, we're under the new covenant. The Mosaic covenant is uh, no longer in effect. It's been completely set aside, and in its place, the new covenant has come. It's been ratified through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says in Colossians 2, verse 16, Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to the food or drink or respect to festival or new moon or Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Uh, again, we went through many texts of Scripture showing you how really it was the Lord Jesus who set aside the first day of the week as the day to worship Him. Uh, the Christian church doesn't have a Sabbath, uh, per se, and you hear that oftentimes, uh, uh, people trying to make Sunday into the Christian Sabbath. The, the Christian church doesn't have a Sabbath. The Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead on Sunday, the first day of the week. It was the Lord Jesus Christ who manifested himself to his disciples on the first day of the week. It was the Lord Jesus Christ who was worshipped as he uh, was resurrected. He was worshipped on the first day of the week. The first New Testament sermon was preached on the first day of the week, and I explained to you that it was an exposition and not some kind of conversational dialogue. Uh, and uh, not only was there a uh, morning worship service, but there was also an evening worship service on the first day of the week. Uh, there was a commissioning service on the first day of the week where the gospel was uh, uh, commissioned to, to be taken to the entire world. And then we saw how the Lord Jesus uh, appeared to his disciples eight days later. Uh, he was the one who came to them eight days later in the way of Jewish counting would again uh, been uh, a Sunday. He met them on the second, uh, second Sunday. Uh, he came, came to them. Uh, and so on the second Sunday when he meets with the Lord, there was a guy, Thomas, who wasn't there the first time. Uh, and so now he has an opportunity to uh, see the risen Christ. And then we saw how in the promise of Christ to send the person of the Holy Spirit, uh, that that was accomplished on the day of Pentecost. And I went through and showed you how that was also a Sunday. That's the day the church was born. It was born on Sunday. That's the day when Peter preached under the uh, ministry power of the Holy Spirit. He preaches and 3,000 souls were saved under uh, on that sermon again on a Sunday. So it's not men who set aside the first day of the week as something to make it special. It's the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who did it. He's the one who set that day aside as a day to worship and honor him. And you see that pattern all through the New Testament, uh, wherever, church, uh, the, wherever the church was gathered. They always met on the first day of the week. You see it all the way into the book of the Revelation where John gives, uh, <clears throat> has a revelation and he says it happened to him on the 
Lord's Day, which again is the first day of the week, Sunday. So if you missed the sermon, you can go back and pick up that uh, material. Again, we covered a, a lot of material over an hour or so. And uh, the, it's the Lord Jesus Christ who sets apart that day as a, this day, Sunday, as a day to uh, worship him, honor him, remember his resurrection from the dead. And that's what we do each and every Sunday that we gather, right? We remember the Lord's Day because that's the day he set aside uh, again, in special remembrance of himself. Now, the second question that was asked, and I just introduced it again, it was a couple of weeks ago, was where was Jesus for the three days between his death and resurrection? So take a big breath because this is going to uh, fill your brain. There's a lot of material here. It's a very interesting question, and in some ways it's kind of a complex uh, question. It's a question that can only be answered uh, if we're careful not to read too much in uh, to certain portions of Scripture and if we do not rely too much on extra biblical material uh, to try to take a position on it. Now, surprisingly, there's been a tremendous amount of, uh, of information written on it, and not just through the years, obviously, there's been much written on it, but even recently, uh, I came across, somebody uh, recommended it to me, so I bought this book, 250-page long, rather academic theological treatise uh, on the subject that I kind of slugged my way partly through this uh, last week. Uh, it's written by a guy named Matthew Emerson entitled, He Descended uh, to, the, to the Dead. And there are a number of uh, modern uh, conservative pastors and theologians who have read that book and who have lined up behind uh, what Emerson is teaching there uh, and, and supporting this idea of the descent of Christ into hell. And, and uh, because that's what they would say, that's where Jesus went between the th on the three days between his death and resurrection. Now, of course, there's a number of modern conservative pastors that denounce the doctrine. And they say it's unbiblical. And I think this is important. There's a few who have changed their mind <clears throat> along the way. So I studied and read a lot, and, and, I, and I found some who had one position when they were younger, and they had a different position when they were older. And I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Because we always want to reserve the right to change our understanding of the Scripture as our understanding of the Bible increases, right? That's a fair position. That's, that's not, uh, we, we should allow that. We want, we want people, we, all, we want that, that ability, right, to grow in our knowledge and understanding. And so there's some guys that held one position at one part of their life and hold another position at another part of their life. Now, again, biblically or theologically, I should say theologically, this whole idea is known as the doctrine of the descent, D-E-S-C-E-N-T, the doctrine of the descent. And in a very concise manner, it says this. It's the teaching that generally has been understood to mean that after the physical death of Jesus, uh, his soul really went to Sheol, the place of the dead where his victory over Satan and sin and the grave were all announced. His body remained in the grave for three days, and his soul remained in the place of the righteous dead. Now, most of the modern proponents that would hold to this position uh, would make sure to note that they are not teaching that Christ suffered or was tormented in hell, that this was not a continuation of his humiliation, but they would say, modern guys would say, uh, this is in fact the beginning of his exaltation. Although there have been people in the past who have taught the, the very opposite, that, that it was part of uh, the continuing humiliation. In fact, Calvin at one time taught that. He said this at one point in his life. He says, Christ's descent into hell refers to the fact that he not only died bodily, uh, a bodily death, but that it was expedient at the same time for him to undergo the severity of God's vengeance to appease his wrath and to satisfy his just judgment. Now, again, being fair to Calvin, at some point later in his life, that was written when he was younger, at some point later in his life, he changed his opinion uh, 
par parenthetically to the correct one. Okay, but that's the one he held at one point in his life. Right? Now, to keep going back here and try to define this from the, the modern guys who promote this doctrine, they would say his body, his, his body remained in the grave for three days and his soul remained in the place of the righteous dead, whereupon he declared his victory, achieved, his per, uh, achieved by his penal substitutionary death, uh, to those in the place of the dead, fallen angels and unrighteous dead, and the spirits in prisons from the days of Noah and the righteous dead, who saw for the first time the object of their faith, namely uh, their victorious Savior. And on the third day, he left the realm of the dead and ascended to be reunited with his body and then uh, resurrected from the grave. So that's what they teach. Um, proclamation, Jesus going to the place of the dead, making a proclamation. Um, again, there's been a tremendous amount written uh, historically on this idea. Uh, again, in the history of the church, a lot of it comes from uh, the Apostles' Creed uh, that gradually took shape over a, a long period of time, from about 200 A.D. to 750 A.D., with a couple variations, uh, with some of the early versions of the Creed not including the phrase that really gets the greatest attention that's caused the controversy, and that addition uh, coming about uh, six, uh, 650 A.D. or so. Now, the Apostles' Creed, which is the oldest uh, Christian uh, creed in the Christian church says this, and a lot of people, I mean, we're non-creedal, but there's a lot of churches that gather together that are creedal and, and, and uh, recite this every uh, time they meet on the Lord's Day. But it says this, the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and uh, Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who, has con who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, and here's the phrase, he descended into hell, the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From whence, from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. And I believe the Holy Ghost. And then it says the, in the Holy Catholic Church. He's not talking about the, the creed. He's not talking about the Roman Catholic Church. It just means church universal. Uh, and the communion of the saints and forgiveness of sin, the resurrection of the body and the life uh, and everlasting life. Amen. Now. The, the, the phrase that really grabs everybody's attention, of course, is he descended into hell, which some scholars, again, would say did not appear in the earlier versions of the Apostles' Creed, but it was later added. It's also seen, that phrase is also seen in the Athanasian Creed. Uh, the Athanasian Creed was written by a man named Athanasius in the fourth century, the fourth century bishop. He was a prominent defender of Trinitarianism. Uh, the creed declares the key beliefs about the Trinity, specifically the equal natures of three persons. So in that part of the Athanasian Creed, it says this, speaking of Christ, he suffered death for our salvation. He descended into hell and rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father and will come again to judge the living and the dead. Now, creeds and confessions are helpful. They've been around a long time in the history of the church. Uh, the, they were used very on in the early church to help clarify doctrine and to protect from error. And where, where they are biblically accurate, they're helpful. Uh, again, the Athanasian Creed uh, is very helpful uh, in, in defining uh, the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, we worship one God, it says, in Trinity, uh, in the Trinity and unity, and neither confusing the persons nor dividing the divine being. For the Father is one person, the Son is another, and the Spirit is still another. But the deity of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is one equal in glory, co-eternal co in majesty. What the Father is, the Son is, and so is the Holy Spirit. Uncreated is the Father, uncreated is the Son, uncreated is the Spirit. The Father is infinite, the Son is infinite, the Holy Spirit is infinite. Eternal is the Father, eternal is the Son, uh, eternal 
eternal is the spirit, and yet there are not three eternal beings, but one who is eternal. There are not three uncreated, unlimited beings, but one who is uncreated and unlimited, and so on and so forth. It's a very helpful uh, document. And again, while as helpful as creeds and uh, uh, um, confessions are, they're not inspired. So, so again, the issue really surrounds that little phrase, he descended into hell. The, the question on the table is, is it biblical? You also find the phrase in the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, question number 44 uh, says, uh, why was it added, he descended into Hades? Answer, that in my greatest temptation, I may be assured that Christ my Lord, by his inexpressible anguish, pains and terrors, uh, which he suffered in his soul on the cross and before has redeemed me from the anguish of hell. So those who would hold and promote uh, the doctrine of Christ's descent would again attempt to find their biblical sort, uh, their biblical um, support, uh, in part coming from those creeds, but in part coming from an idea in Judaism uh, that in the afterlife there was an intermediate state in which the souls of the deceased persons dwelled, uh, although in different compartments. The common place of the dead was referred to as Sheol or Hades, and it was believed to be divided into at least three parts, Abraham's bosom, paradise, uh, a place for the righteous, and then Gehenna, or in some instances, Sheol or Hades, a place for the unrighteous dead, and then a place called Tardis for the imprisoned, imprisoned rebellious angels that are uh, now spirits. These compartments, the author says, these compartments were seen as the holding place uh, until the general resurrection of the dead in which temporary judgment placed upon the inhabitants would become final and eternal. Again, the descent teaches that between his death and his resurrection, Jesus in his soul, human soul continued consciously to exist in the intermediate state, specifically in paradise, or in Abraham's bosom, the righteous compartment of the dead. This view is of the intermediate state in Jesus' existence in between his death and resurrection is reflected in texts like, and he gives a number of texts, and we'll, we'll work through some of those here in a moment. So, again, those who would hold to this position would say, that, that Jesus didn't just experience the intermediate state between his death and resurrection, but in that intermediate state, Jesus went and proclaimed victory over death. Jesus went and proclaimed victory uh, and transformed paradise. Uh, again, his victory is transformation of paradise uh, or, or the place of the righteous dead, transforming it from a faithful expectation of the Messiah coming to the Messiah's actual presence among them. And again, this is accomplished all by his penal substitutionary death as the unique one, right? The only one of his kind, the, the God-man. And again, Jesus, they would say, gains victory over death by experiencing it on our behalf. Revelation 1.18 says, uh, I died, behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. So again, he is the righteous one, the complete righteous one, the Messiah, the righteous Messiah. He's also God in, in, in human flesh. He's one who enters the place of the dead, and death cannot hold him captive because of who he is. And again, his words indicating that now he has possession of the keys of, uh, of that realm, the realm of death and Hades. He's taking it from uh, the master over that realm, the former master uh, in his descent. So he's achieved victory. He goes and proclaims victory uh, over death and, uh, and, uh, and Hades and the occupants there in his descent. And again, uh, there's a, a number of uh, passages, one that they would use. I'll, I'll just reference it now, but we'll look at it here in a moment. First uh, Peter 3.19 uh, as a big proof text uh, in this area. First Peter 3.18 says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order they might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Verse 19, in which also he went and made proclamation uh, to the spirits now in prison. 
So uh, those who would hold this position, most of them uh, would hold this position to make sure, again, we understand they're not teaching that uh, Peter's using the word proclamation in the sense of heralding or proclaiming a, a second chance, a second post-death uh, chance gospel opportunity. Some held that before, but these modern guys are saying they're not really teaching that now. Uh, they're not teaching a second post-gospel opportunity, which the dead are now giving an opportunity to repent and believe. So uh, that, that's the position. And instead, they would teach that the idea of the, the proclamation of Christ is, again, him declaring victory uh, that has already been uh, achieved, already been won by, again, by his penal substitutionary death. Uh, he, he's going to make vindication. He's going to make known his victory. Uh, and his impending uh, resurrection is going to validate all that and then his ascension into heaven. Uh, he would teach, uh, these people would teach that Jesus' proclamation to all the inhabitants of the dead uh, is uh, because he's making a proclamation that he is Lord of all those under the earth, as it says in Philippians 2 and 10, and that he's going to declare himself to be Lord over those all uh, over the earth at his resurrection and over those uh, in heaven in his ascension. So those who would hold to that position teach uh, the presence of Christ transforms the nature of paradise from, again, expectation to reality. Uh, those Old Testament saints, in, in the words of one person uh, who's, who wrote that book that I look we're, we're through 250 pages, uh, those, those Old Testament saints who were cut off from God's presence, who sat waiting in darkness uh, of death for the coming of the Messiah, uh, who they trusted in life, now they're going to see by sight uh, what they formerly always saw by faith. Now, uh, Jesus is with them. Soon he's going to be raised again, right? This is the intermediate state, they would say. He's going to be raised as a sign uh, of the coming resurrection, their coming resurrection from the dead. And then when he's going to be raised on the third day, he's going to lead, host, lead host, uh, 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 a host of captives, right? Uh, Ephesians 4.9. Right? Those who are formerly uh, captive in death by virtue of faith in the Messiah, uh, who has defeated death, uh, their resurrection, uh, his resurrection presence too, they're going to be uh, because of his resurrection, they too are going to be raised from the dead. Now, I, I think that's a lot, uh, but I do think that's a fair and accurate uh, representation of this teaching uh, that, again, is, is pretty popular, uh, and me personally, surprisingly, to some people who have, have uh, uh, kind of signed on to it. But, but we want to be uh, uh, fair. We want to evaluate everything by the Scripture. Uh, and again, listen, literally, there are really good men that line up on both sides of that issue. Um, they're really good men who line up on both sides of the issue. They're really good men that have held one position at one point of their life, and the more they've studied, they've changed their position as their understanding of Scripture has uh, changed or, or their understanding of Scripture has increased. So I think my, my personal opinion here, this is kind of underlying the whole thing or overlying the whole thing, overarching the whole thing, I think we need to have an attitude of charity. I was talking to the elders about that this morning, charity. Boy, is that a word we don't use much anymore anywhere, Right? What is charity? It just means kindness. And, and it's really sad. We, don't, we used to use it all the time in, in, in the church, but we don't use it very much in the church at all either. There needs to be an attitude of charity, an attitude of kindness, an attitude of uh, a toleration, especially in judgment. So let's look at some of the passages of Scripture that uh, are used to support the idea of a possible descent. Again, D-E-S-C-E-N-T, a descent into hell. And one of the passages that they like is out of Acts chapter 2. So go ahead and turn there. We're going to look at a number of passages uh, of Scripture this evening. Acts chapter 2. Uh, 
And I hope you find this interesting, because I think it's interesting. I spent a ton of time on this. I, I think there's some fascinating things that you find when you really start digging into this issue and, and some conclusions that I think are very helpful. Uh, that This is not just an academic uh, exercise, but it really has real-world uh, application. Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 27 is the verse they use, but let's... Uh, Let's dive in at verse 22, Acts chapter 2, verse 22. This is part of Peter's sermon there, obviously, on the day of Pentecost. Acts 2, verse 22, it says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourself know. This man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. So again, the resurrection of the Messiah, the resurrection of Christ, right? The resurrection of the Messiah was God's plan all along. And, and Peter's quoting out of Psalm 16, uh, 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 8, uh, uh, the passage is really written by David, but David prophetically speaking about the Messiah. He's describing the Messiah's confident trust as the Messiah is going to go to the cross. Verse 25 for David says of him, I was always beholding the Lord in my presence, for he was at my right hand, and I will not be shaken. Uh, therefore, my heart was glad, and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh will also abide in hope. And it's interesting, interesting that word abide there literally means to pitch a tent. So it's an expression that the Messiah is certain that he can commit his body to the grave with a confident hope that he's going to be raised to life again. Right? He's, he, he can pitch his tent in hope. He's not going to stay in the grave is what he's saying. Verse 27, because thou will not abandon my soul to Hades or uh, allow thy holy one to undergo decay. So God is promising that during the three days that Christ is in the tomb, his body will undergo no corruption. And again, he's quoting out of uh, Psalm uh, 16 here, Psalm 1610. The authorized King James Version reads like this um, in Acts chapter 2, verse 27. Uh, King James says, Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou uh, suffer thine holy one to see corruption. So again, the question is, does this mean that Christ was in hell uh, after he died? That's the question. Now, the word hell here represents the, the New Testament uh, word Hades, or in the Old Testament, the word Sheol, S-H-E-O-L, Sheol. And both of those words can simply mean the grave or the dead or, or death or the state of being dead. Now, the NIV, if you have that, Acts 2.27, translates it like this. Because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One uh, see decay. And I think that's probably a better translation, a preferable one, since that really is taking the word there in the context. Uh, because, again, the context is emphasizing the fact that Christ's body rose from the grave as opposed to um, uh, David's body, which is going to remain in the grave, right? Uh, uh, Acts 2.26, again, the NIV. Um, Therefore, my heart uh, is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Verse 28 says in the NAS, it says, Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. He's talking about resurrection life, uh, the result of the resurrection. You made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness in your presence. Verse 28. 
So Peter, again, is using the psalm of David to show that Christ's body is not going to undergo decay when he's in the tomb for those three days, unlike David's body who has uh, undergone corruption. Verse 29, brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and in his tomb and is with us to this day. Verse 30, and so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon the throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades or to the grave, nor did his flesh undergo decay uh, this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses, right? So it's really difficult to take the position that this passage here is, uh, of Scripture uh, is giving absolute support for the idea of the descent of Christ into hell because what it's really speaking about is the fact that Christ is going to be resurrected from the grave, right? So that's the point of that, that portion of Scripture. Now, Romans 10, uh, 6 and 7 is another text of Scripture that's used as a possible biblical support for the idea of the, of the descent by Christ into hell. So turn over there. Uh, and we're going to be all over the place here. Uh, Romans 10. In Romans 10, uh, verse 6, 6 and 7, begins with... Um, Two rhetorical questions, and they're actually a quote out of the Old Testament, and actually a quote out of Deuteronomy 30, verse 13. But it says this, But the righteous, the righteousness based, verse 6, the righteousness based on faith speaks thus, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. So is this portion of Scripture teaching that Christ descended into hell? Is that the point of this uh, text? Is that the context? Answer, probably not. Uh, because in the context, what Paul is speaking about here is he's telling people not to ask these, times of, these kinds of uh, crazy questions because Christ is not far away. He's not unreachable. Uh, he's very near. He's as near as confessing in your mouth. Look at verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart a man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth it confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. So again, the point of 6 and 7 here in, uh, in Romans 10 is, like, is this. Even if it were possible for men who are looking for our salvation to ascend to Christ or go to and bring him down or to descend into the abyss, and that would be the depths of the earth, sometimes it's referred to the ocean, and bring him up from the dead, uh, you don't have to do that. That's, a, that's why it's a rhetorical question. You don't have to do that. Uh, you don't have to take these great uh, esoteric, mystical, um, uh, uh, impossible journeys to try to find Christ. He's near. He's not far. Salvation is possible. It's near to everyone uh, by faith. Again, you don't have to ascend or descend or do some kind of crazy, extraordinary, supernatural work to find Christ. Christ is always available to everyone. So this portion of Scripture is not teaching that Christ descended into hell in the sense that he went to a place of the punishment of the dead. Paul, again, is just giving this great contrast to heaven, the abyss. Uh, again, the abyss is a term that's sometimes used to refer to the depths of the ocean as well as possibly uh, the realm of the dead. But the point of the, uh, of the, of the contrast between heaven and, and the deeps is that salvation is not unreachable. I mean, give me a hand. How many of us can jump up into heaven and grab Christ and bring him down? 
right? Well, nobody unless you're a Roman Catholic priest, which they can't do either, but they claim they have that power. That's why the Roman Catholic, Roman Catholic Church is such an abomination, right? Because when they, when they do the Eucharist, uh, they, they are claiming that the Roman Catholic priest has the power to bring Christ down. Let me tell you what that is. That's called blasphemy. That's not true. They don't have that power. And so he's saying, look, if you want to find Christ, you don't have to do something crazy like jump up to heaven, or nor do you have to go to the abyss and try to bring Christ up. He's, he's, he's near. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be what? Saved. Right? So that's the point. That's why he's, people don't have to go to heaven. They don't have to go to the deeps or, or the realm of the dead to find Christ. So this portion of Scripture in the context in my opinion, is not teaching, uh, it's, not a pro, it's not a proof text for teaching the doctrine of the descent. It's not what he's talking about. Now, another portion of Scripture that is used is Ephesians 4. So go ahead and turn over there. And, and again, they use Ephesians 4, 8, and 9 to try to defend uh, uh, the doctrine of the descent. Ephesians 4, 8. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, verse 9, now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So does this portion of scripture teach that Christ descended into hell? That's the question. When he ascended on high, he led captives, a host of captives, and gave gifts to men. Does that mean that Jesus emptied paradise, or Abraham's bosom, again, this collection place, uh, of all the righteous Old Testament saints, and took, him, took them back with him uh, from, the, from the dead back up into heaven? Now, what is the context of this portion of Scripture? Right? Is that the context? Is it teaching that, or is it teaching something else? What's the context of Ephesians 4. Well, it's been a long time since we've been in the book of Ephesians, but you might remember that in the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters are all doctrinal truth, right? This is, all, this is what God has done. So doctrinal truth, what God has done through the person of Jesus Christ, you get to chapter 4, it begins the practical application of doctrine. Because all that God has done for us through Christ, this is how we are to live. Just look up at the top of the chapter. This is how we are to apply the reality of the forgiveness that God has granted to us through Christ. Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you've been called with all humility and gentleness and patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, etc. So again, this is practical application of doctrine when you get to chapter 4. It, it, it's, it's the proclamation of the gospel is what God has done, not what men have done not what men have done, but God does ask men to obey what God has uh, uh, provided for them through the person of Christ. There are certain requirements and standards, but that's not the issue. Uh, the issue in the heart of Christianity is what God has done. What God has done and what God enables us to do through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, therefore, as I said this morning, because of Christ, it changes everything. There's a certain response that is required from us. So the beginning of this whole chapter four is practical, application of doctrine because of what God has done through Christ, right? He begins the first six verses to describe this is what a worthy walk looks like. And then in verses 7 to 11, he is assuring us, Paul is assuring that every believer has individually been gifted by God in the body of Christ. He's going to command you to do something, but the Holy Spirit has equipped you to do exactly what he commands you to do because that's the way God works. So Paul is showing how Christ obtained the rights to give gifts 
that he would give to his church to bless his church. And basically, Paul's going to tell us that Christ won, W-O-N, he won the right to give gifts to his church through his humiliation, through his victorious ascension back to the right hand of God. Verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Verse 8, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now that's a reference out of Psalm 68, verse 18. Psalm 68, verse 18 says, thou hast ascended on high, thou hast led captive thy captives, and thou hast received gifts among men. Psalm 68 is a psalm of David. It's a little bit difficult to following places, but the overarching message of the psalm is that God is the one to be praised whose past acts of deliverance and provision for his people give confidence of his continuing care for his people. That's the idea, right? God's going to continue to take care of his people. So the message in uh, verse 18 of, uh, of, uh, of, of that psalm, Psalm 68, is a picture of the victorious king. It's God. He is ascended to Zion and triumph over his enemies. And what Paul is doing is he's taking this picture out of the Old Testament about a victorious Israelite king leading his captives in a triumphal procession, uh, receiving gifts, uh, the gifts of booty, if you will, and, and applying them to the victorious ascension of Christ in, in Christ's relationship to the church. So, so the king goes out and he wins a major battle. He brings home the spoils of war. We got that picture, right? He brings back uh, the enemy, uh, all the loot and all the booty. He brings back the enemy, the prisoners, and parades them before his people. And he would also display in this, in this uh, uh, long procession, he would display his own soldiers who had been freed, those who had been held captive by the enemy. Look, I've gone and rescued them. I'm, I'm victorious in bringing them back. And sometimes these individuals will be known as the recaptured captives, uh, prisoners that have been taken prisoner again, uh, so to speak, by the king this time. And their own king has brought them back to their country. His own, their own king is going to give them freedom. So again, Paul takes this picture and he applies it to Christ. Again, Psalm 68, 18. In that context, Psalm 68, 18 it talks about the Lord ascending, the Lord God ascending. Uh, verse 17 says, The chariots of God are myriads and thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. At Sinai in his holiness, thou hast ascended on high. Thou hast led people's captives. Uh, thou hast led captive thy, uh, captive thy captives. Thou hast received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, the Lord, that the Lord God may dwell there. So again, it's a picture of people in trouble, God coming and rescuing, and God setting free his captives. So uh, again, God's come, people are in trouble, he comes down, he delivers them, uh, and then he sends back up into heaven uh, uh, as a victorious warrior. So pa Paul is uh, taking that picture, that Old Testament picture of a conquering king, he's applying it to the person of Jesus Christ. So when he speaks of Christ, he's speaking of Christ in the fact of the deity of Christ, that he's the one who has this kind of power. Verse 8, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a, ca a, a host of captives. He's talking about this reference back to Psalm 18. He's taking this visual picture and bringing it to the person of Christ. The victorious Christ is what he's saying. Just like the general in the Old Testament, the victorious Christ is ascending to heaven after securing victory over his enemies. Victories over sin, victories over death, victories over Satan, uh, all, all of Satan, evil hosts. Again, Christ defeating them all at the cross. Uh, we, we, we understand that. And again, actually, we, we are, we who are New Testament believers, we're actually part of these who've been led captive because at one time we were what? We were formerly God's enemies, but we've been recaptured captives, right? We have been set free because of 
God's uh, kindness to us, the willingness uh, to, to provide salvation for us at the cross. And uh, now we are willingly led by this one whom we formerly hated as we repented and come to faith in Christ. So again, after Christ's ascension, after his triumph, going back, returning, uh, after doing battle on the earth, going back to glory in the heaven, his trophies of his great victory, uh, uh, again, us, part of that group, uh, he gives gifts to his church. He's won the right to give gifts to his church. When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. The victorious warrior has that prerogative to take the spoils of victory and then distribute that spoil to his people. Now, Paul doesn't exactly quote uh, the psalm. Rather, he kind of conveys the substance of the psalm in his own language. But he's drawing an analogy from the psalm, and, and he's not contradict, contradicting the psalm in any, any way in its original context. But he's, again, the victorious king receives the booty. He has the right to receive, to distribute his booty, uh, his loot, if you will, amongst his loyal subjects. So obviously, again, you have the victorious Christ, Christ's ascension, and Christ's ascension is far greater than any earthly king's victory, far greater than the gifts that he gives to people just as earthly possessions, money, uh, uh, plates of gold, whatever, silver. No, it, it, it's a salvation, right? Christ has made salvation possible. He's given the gift of life to his people. And again, it costs Christ a great amount to go win that victory. So now he has the right to do what he wants to with what he has gathered, so Christ's victorious ascension assumes, right, he's come, done battle in the world, defeated sin and death, died, come out of the tomb, and now he's going to ascend. His, his ascension assumes his descent, right? He had to come to the earth to accomplish all that he accomplished for us and, and for the glory of God. Verse 9, now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? So again, Paul's just using logic. He's using reason. He said, look, if Christ ascended after his death, that means, go back a couple steps, previously he had to descend. He had to come down. And that's what he said all the time in the New Testament. There's nothing new here. This is what he explained to Nicodemus, right? Back in John chapter 3. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who has descended, right? Even the Son of Man. And Jesus claimed numerous times uh, that he had come down from heaven, uh, that he had been uh, sent to this earth by his father, John uh, 6.33, John 6.38. John 6.38 says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Right? He, he's descended. John 6.51, read the same thing, John 6.58. And then when he ascended back into heaven, again, Jesus is returning to the place where he dwelt before the foundation of the world. Right? Restore to me the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. Right? So he's going back to the place that he came from. That's John 6, verse 62. Now, the question comes, obviously, here in all of that material, the question comes when it says that he also descended in the lower parts of the earth. What does that mean? Now, there's a variety of different opinions on the, on the uh, uh, answer to that question, as you might think. But does that mean he descended in the lower parts of the earth? Does that mean that Jesus descended in hell? Well, some people say, well, it just simply means uh, exactly what I just said. It contrasted the earth to the, to the heaven. This expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also descended in the lower parts of the earth. Uh, the NIV translates it that way. What does, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the earthly regions? Uh, again, they're just saying Christ is the one who went up to heaven. The only reason he'd come up to heaven is because he first came down from heaven, right? He, he's the one who came from heaven to the earth. He, he uh, conquers uh, uh, his enemies, and then he takes um, 
uh, his possession and uh, has won that right to take them back. He has won the, the, the right to give gifts uh, to those who belong to him. Uh, and, and, and so this is speaking of his incarnation. That's all it's saying. All of this phraseology is just speaking of his incarnation. He's the one who was up, who came down, who goes back up because he's victorious. It's speaking of his incarnation. It's not speaking of his descent, so-called in a place called hell. That's not what the context is. Uh, verse 10, he who descended is himself. He who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So I, I think that's the correct interpretation here. The victorious Christ's ascension places him above everyone on the planet, above all power. He has the right to rule. He has come down. He has won the victory. He's going to defeat death. He's going to ascend back. He has the right to rule. He has the right to rule, to write the reign. He's the sovereign over everything, the sovereign over his church. He has the sovereign, uh, as the sovereign has the right to exercise his, exercise his rule by expressing his rule in the church and by expressing his presence in the church. And he expresses his presence in the church by giving gifts to those who belong to him in his body who represent him on the earth until he returns. In fact, I think I proved that by verse 11. Look what it says. What is he talking about? I don't know. This is so confusing. It's not confusing. It's just an illustration from the Old Testament. Here's the right he has. He gave some as apostles and some as prophets. Oh, now I'm getting something where I can hang on to. He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors, teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints. There we go. It's his body. He wants to help them. For the work of the service, the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and the, uh, the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the statue which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Christ is sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. It's not some crazy thing about going down, descending into the place of hell. It's just talking about, here's an illustration, conquering king. Christ is victorious. That's what it's talking about. Now, some people go a little bit further. They go, well, you know, okay, that's good. But when it says he also descended the lower parts of the earth, uh, that's a reference to the grave. So they would go to Philippians 2.8. It says, being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself, become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Okay, that's great. Uh, so again, they, they would say that the verse 9 there shows that he's uh, risen, uh, descended Christ. He's qualified to bestow spiritual gifts because he came from heaven to earth. He went to the cross and the grave and defeated them all. So again, it's just, they would say, we're going to take a little bit lo lo more. It's just really a level of condescension, another level of humiliation. The depths of his love and his incarnation is going to go all the way to the grave. I, I can live with that. I don't think that's the best, but I, I can live with that. There's still another group that come along and say that phrase, he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. They says, there it is, right there, bing, bing, bing. That's where you get the, the doctrine. This is where Christ, between death and resurrection, this is where he went and descended into hell. And they base that understanding of this text off of an interpretation of another text, which is 1 Peter chapter 3. So guess what you're going to do now? You're going to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. You will be okay. 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, verse 18. For Christ also died for sins... Once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, 
in which he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who were at once disobedient, when in the patience of God, or when the when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the during the construction of the ark, in which as few which in in which a few that is eight persons were brought safely through the water. Whew. Boy, there you go. You think it's cloudy now? Just wait for a few moments here, right? Now I got it. It's a difficult portion of scripture. It's a little bit confusing. You'll be okay. Trust me in the end. In the end, trust me, you'll be fine. Okay? In the context of the, of the, of the first Peter section, he's talking about suffering. He's talking about unjust suffering of believers, and he's comparing that unjust suffering of believers, right, to those scattered through all these different areas. Right? He's talking about the unjust suffering of believers in comparison to the example of the unjust suffering of the person of Christ. And how Christ's unjust suffering achieved God's triumphal purposes. And again, as the heart of the gospel is the fact that Jesus Christ, the, the perfectly innocent one, the perfectly righteous one, died for the utterly unrighteous, right? The utterly ungodly. He triumphed through his undeserved suffering as God predetermined, providing redemption for the world. Uh, again, 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also died for the sins, also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. That's a very concise uh, summary of the gospel. That's the meaning of the cross. That's the meaning of the substitutionary atonement of the person of Jesus Christ. The just for the unjust. Uh, to fulfill the divine purposes of God through the person of Christ, that being reconciliation. Right? For Christ died uh, for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. The verse goes on, says, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So Christ, I've told you all through the book of John, Christ lived a literal life. And a real literal life, a real literal physical body, and he literally suffered a physical death. So the verse speaks against those who are claiming that Jesus never really died in the first place, but that he merely fainted or went into some kind of uh, coma, semi-coma, uh, uh, on the cross or whatever, and he was revived in the uh, coolness of the tomb, uh, unwrapped himself and walked out. So, so that's not true. That's not what, that, that's not what the Bible teaches, and that, that verse is teaching against that. Jesus was dead. Having been put to death in the flesh, he really died, physically dead, but spiritually alive. Uh, verse, uh, what's the next verse? Verse 19, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits uh, now in prison, the ones uh, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. Now, here again is where some have said, when he went to make proclamation to the spirits now in prison, that's when Christ went to hell. That's when he went to hell. That's when he, he preached to the spirits there. Again, either proclaiming the gospel, depending on where you're at in this thing, either proclaiming the gospel again for a second chance of, uh, of salvation, a second chance to repent, or just proclaiming his triumph over the realm of death, his triumph over sin, uh, his triumph over all the demonic forces, his, his triumph over all those who are eternally condemned. So what do you do uh, here with the phrase, uh, he went and made proclamation to the spirits, here it is now in prison, who were once disobedient? Because again, the Bible means something. I mean, there's all kinds of little uh, uh, hints. We're, we're getting defining uh, terms here. Uh, these are two qualifiers, right? When he went and made proclamation to the spirits, now in prison, qualifier number one, and that's the ones who were disobedient, qualification number two. 
Now, it doesn't say that Christ went to the realm of the dead, as people try to use this passage to uh, promote and just preach in general. I mean, again, Peter's going to further limit the audience uh, to those who were disobedient during the time of the building of the ark. He went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, uh, verse 20, who once were disobedient when in the patience of God, uh, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. Now, it would appear strange for Christ to descend to hell just to speak to a limited audience, uh, just to proclaim uh, um, triumph just to these sinners, because again, uh, 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 Peter has kind of delimited this thing down. And likewise, it would appear strange for Christ to descend to hell and give a second chance to salvation just to these sinners. Why not to everyone? Now listen, the Bible doesn't teach anywhere that there's a second chance. The Bible teaches nowhere that there's a second chance for anyone for repentance after death. Hebrews 9, verse 27, it's appointed unto man once to die, then comes the judgment. Hebrews 10, 27, there's a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire that consumes the adversaries. Now, Wayne Grudem, uh, he's helpful here. He points out in the context of 1 Peter 3, he says, look, in the context of 1 Peter 3, it makes this idea of preaching in hell unlikely. As Peter is encouraging his readers to witness boldly to hostile unbelievers around them, as he's just finished to tell them to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you. That's helpful, 1 Peter 3.15. What's the context? What is he talking about? Is he talking, we're talking about giving an answer, right? We're talking about suffering in, in a fallen world. Uh, as they all of a sudden go, like, you, you know, in the old days when we used to have records, I know records are coming back, but when you used to take the, you used to take the needle and go zip, right? Is it all of a sudden we've just changed subjects here and we've gone off, <laughs> we've gone into the abyss? No, he's not talking about that. But that's what people want you to believe. We've just gone to the abyss. He's just changed the subject completely. No, he's talking about a certain context. If there's a second chance, then why do you have to always be ready to give an answer? For everyone who asks you, he's talking about how do you, how do you survive in an unbelieving world and facing persecution and, and then have hope, right? How does your unjust suffering in that world, just like Christ's unjust suffering in, in the world in which he lived, how does that work its way out? So in the evangelistic context of this chapter, verse 3, or chapter 3, that would really lose its urgency if somehow this portion of Scripture was teaching some kind of second chance. He's going to go and make proclamation and give a second chance to people for salvation after death. It would not fit in, into the context. So this section of Scripture is not teaching that Christ made some kind of descent into hell when Peter says, uh, Jesus went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who were once disobedient when the, present, uh, when the patience of God kept waiting the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through the water. So what in the world does it mean? And I think another question that's not asked very often is when? When did this occur? And what in the world does this have to do with Noah? Right? And there's, all, there's clues all along the way. We just got to slow down and, and, and look uh, for the answers. Well, let's go back to the times of Noah because we got him in there, right? So what was it like in the times of Noah? Well, we know that things were bad, right? Really bad. Uh, you think things are bad now? I have not seen an ark being built in the neighborhood anywhere. So I'm assuming things were really bad then. And, and Noah takes about 120 years or so and he's building an ark because uh, sin was so rampant on the earth 
God declared that he's not going to tolerate man's wickedness anymore. So the entire human race, except for this guy Noah, uh, is unrighteous. The entire human race is evil. God determined he's going to uh, wipe mankind from the face of the earth. Genesis chapter 6, sorry that he made man. Right? Things are so wicked. The Bible says also that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. In fact, not only was the ark a literal place of refuge for those who repent and place their faith in what God says to be true, but the ark really stood as a visual symbol of condemnation. Right? 120 years. What are you doing with that boat? You know, well, I'm building a boat because it's going to rain and God's going to wipe off all of, of humanity. Yeah, right. What's rain? We've never seen it before. Daddy, you know, a little kid comes home. Daddy, Mr. Noah's down the road building this, uh, building this boat because he says judgment's coming, it's going to rain. Well, that old coot was saying that when I was a kid, right? He's crazy. Don't listen to him, right? So the, the ark really stands as a, as a physical uh, condemnation, a literal visual symbol of condemnation that is coming. It's a place of refuge, but it's a physical, physical symbol of judgment that God has promised to bring upon a wicked world. So I think it's very possible, more than likely probable, that the spirits being referred to here, 1 Peter 3.20, is not something that Christ did between his death and resurrection. When did he do this? I don't think it's between uh, his death and resurrection, but I think it's something he did in the spiritual realm, in the spiritual existence through the person of the Holy Spirit at the time of Noah. Noah's a preacher of righteousness in a wicked world. He has a visual symbol. He's building this boat for 120 years. Judgment is coming. Noah's building this ark, and Christ in spirit is preaching through Noah to a hostile, unbelieving world around them that judgment is coming. Always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you in a wicked, unbelieving world. That's the context, okay? Not on the record and we've just launched off into some crazy land. No, it has a context. So this position... That, that I just gave you was a position that many theologians would hold today. Wayne Grudem would hold that, John Walvert, if you're familiar with him, Roger Raymer, and others. In fact, what's really interesting, I think, is this is the position held a long time ago by a guy named Augustine, who had a pretty, pretty big influence in the church. Augustine, Augustine, however you want to pronounce his name. And for some reason, the people have just kind of blown over the top of it and not listened to what he had to say. So this is nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. So again, Noah is a preacher of righteousness, right? Right. 2 Peter, 5, 2 Peter 2, verse 5. And the Spirit of Christ preached through Noah to the ungodly humans uh, that, uh, that at the time of Peter, when Peter was writing, they were spirits in prison, right? Because they come, live their life, they've died. They're spirits in prison awaiting a final judgment. Again, that, according to, to Raymer, uh, that interpretation seems to fit very well in the context of this situation, 1 Peter 3, 13 to 22. The idea of keeping a good conscience in an unjust, uh, under unjust persecution. That's the context of, of 1 Peter. And that's the context in which Noah presented himself as an example of one who committed himself to the course of action that God called him to do for the sake uh, of others around him. Excuse me, for the sake of a clear conscience uh, before God. He just did what God called him. He, he endured harsh ridicule. Uh, Noah didn't uh, fear man, but he obeyed God. He proclaimed the message. He builds a boat out in the middle of the place and says rain's coming. And people go, I have no idea what, the, what we need a boat for. And I have no idea uh, 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 why we need to, to float, right? Because we've never seen rain. Uh, but he was just obedient to God. So Noah's reward in keeping that clear conscience uh, in, in the midst of an unbelieving culture and, and suffering uh, by the ridicule was that he was rescued, he and his family. 
right? Noah is a preacher of righteousness. He believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. So that's really what that text is talking about. Now, I know it's a lot of material. About the 17th time you listen to the sermon, you'll go, I get it. Okay, that's good. All right. Uh, yeah, I don't expect you to get it all at once, but that's, that's what's going on there. So, so far, we're at in this little study, I'm not seeing a whole lot of biblical evidence to justify a doctrine known as the descent of Christ into hell. Now, there's another passage that people like to uh, look, and they sometimes refer to it, and it's not too very far from where you're at. It's over in 1 Peter 4, verse 6. 1 Peter 4, 6. So look over there. 1 Peter 4, 6. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are, the, who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Now, if this verse, as some people teach, is this verse was teaching that Christ went to hell to preach the gospel to those who are dead or those who had died and give them again, quote, unquote, a second chance for salvation, uh, it, would seem to convict, it would seem to contradict all the other portions of Scripture because the Scripture elsewhere doesn't teach that. Nowhere else does it. If that's what it was teaching, this would be the only passage in the Bible that teaches that kind of theology uh, of, of a so-called second chance. But again, that's not what it's teaching. Moreover, there's nothing in the text that explicitly says that Christ preached to people after they died. Rather, a very simple explanation of the verse could be that the gospel is preached in general, and people who are now dead, who once had the opportunity to hear the gospel when they were still alive on the earth, Right? That's, what, that's what it is. They had the opportunity when they were alive, but now they're dead. They're now spirits in prison. Right? When you look at verse 6, that word this, for the gospel has for this purpose been preached. What purpose? Why was the gospel preached? Well, you book, back, up, back in the verse 5, it says that they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The gospel has been preached because there's judgment coming. He's speaking about, in the context, judgment upon rebellious men and women whose purpose uh, or who in time are pursuing a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, uh, carousing, drunken parties, abominable idolatries, etc. and so forth. So again, the context, again, is the judgment of sinful men. And the gospel is proclaimed unto uh, uh, the dead in the sense of those who are spiritually dead, those who once had an opportunity to repent, and come to faith, come to life in Christ if you believe the gospel. And once the gospel is preached, men who refuse the gospel are again dead in their trespasses and sins. Uh, if they don't, they're going to not only die physically, but they're going to die spiritually. For the gospel for this purpose has been preached even to those who are dead, though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. So you repent and come to faith in Christ and you have a chance to live. Even though your body may die, you have a chance to be alive spiritually. So there's no second chance. I don't see any convicting evidence uh, to support the doctrine of descent from, that, de descent from that passage of Scripture either or from any other passage that we've looked at so far. Now, two other things that are going to help you out here so your head doesn't explode. Two other things that I'm going to bring to your attention uh, very quickly, which I don't have the gift of doing, so you'll just bear with me for however long it takes. Um, the idea of the place of the dead being divided uh, is an understanding, a mindset, a thinking that comes in part out of uh, Judaism, but it comes in part of, I think for us, out of Luke 16. You go, what? Remember, do you know where Luke 16 is? Off the top of your head? Mark Luke. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, the rich man and Lazarus. Turn to Luke. This is fascinating. 
Now, obviously, Luke 16, in this whole passage, we could spend a lot, a lot of time on this, but we don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to go through it really fast. Luke 16, verse 19. Fascinating portion of Scripture. And there's one more that's even more fascinating. Luke 16, 19. There was a certain rich man, he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. A certain poor man named Lazarus that was laid at his gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Verse 22, now it came about, came about that the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom and the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, he lifted up his eyes being in torment and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. There you go, Abraham's bosom, right? He cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of uh, his finger in water and cool off my tongue. I am in agony in this flame. And Abraham said, Child, remember during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed. Chasma is the word. It, it, it signifies a vast distance, really, of cosmic proportions. This is not just a little space. This is a big space. And it's not just a big space. It is a massive gulf. And, and because it is a distance of cosmic proportion, it rules out the idea that people literally could see other people from the other side that people could literally recognize people from the other side of the gulf or have a conversation across such an uh, impassable distance. So, not for the only reason, but especially because of that one, or at least in part because of that one, this is not a real story. This is a parable. This is a parable. This is not a true story about something that literally occurred. Now, people come and say, well, it can't be a parable because Jesus gives a name to somebody in the parable, and, and he doesn't do that. You can't do that. Well, I don't know. that. I kind of looked. I don't see any strict rule anywhere in uh, hermeneutics that you can't, uh, you can't give a, a, somebody a name in a parable. I mean, we got Abraham named in there. And I think there's a very important reason why in the parable Jesus gives the man the name Lazarus. Now, it's a form of Eliezer, um, uh, uh, meaning whom the Lord has helped. And the, the name invokes kind of an idea of divine favor. By Jesus, in this parable, by Jesus giving this man, Lazarus, a name, he is a, a graciously lifting this man out of the realm of obscurity. Anonymity, right? A disgrace. That's where beggars uh, found themselves. The rich man in the story is not given a name. And that underscores the idea that he's no longer important. Right? He's no longer important. He's stripped of all of his prominence in the world, including his name. The beggar is given the privilege of being uh, the recipient of God's blessing. And in, in, in life, uh, 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 the rich man ignored uh, the, the beggar completely. Uh, in, in life, the beggar suffers greatly. The rich man ignores him uh, absolutely. So if this is a parable, and I think it is, I'm, I'm convinced it's a parable. I may have taught it at some point, a long time ago that it wasn't a parable. If, if so, I'm, I'm, I'm throwing down my right that I gave to myself at the beginning to change my mind uh, because I've grown in faith and understanding the truth. I think that's fair. It's fair to everybody. This is a parable. If it's a parable, listen to me, you have to be very careful 
to try to explain or interpret every detail of the story in some, the story in some kind of rigidly literal fashion. Because the point of the parable, the point of the idea, is it's trying to convey in the story a point. The parable is trying to make a point. I don't think many points. I think a point. And I think the imagery and the narrative here uh, it has a purpose like all the other parables, and I think this parable has one purpose, and I think this is the point of the parable, to warn people, to warn the hearer of the parable that hell's going to be full of people who never expected to be there. Hell's going to be full of people who never expected to be there. The purpose of the parable is not to teach what hell is like in the realm of the dead, or what hell's like, or what the realm of the dead is like. It's not to teach about this place called Abraham's bosom, like it's some kind of holding tank for Old Testament saints where the righteous would dwell and waiting heaven. And there's another dwelling place across this great chasm, the place of the unrighteous. That's not the point of the parable. And it's very interesting in the parable when he talks about Abraham's bosom or next to Abraham, right? And this idea of Abraham's bosom, just stop and think, is there anything else that comes into your mind that we've been talking about lately, maybe in the book of John, maybe the 13th chapter of the book of John, where John describes himself at the final Passover in the upper room where he writes John 13:23 in the, in the authorized version, King James Version. There he was leaning on Jesus's bosom one of his disciples whom the Lord loved. So where's John there at, the, at this feast? Well, he's in the presence of Christ. He's in the presence of Christ. He's reclining at the table at the feast. I think in the parable, I think both Abraham and Lazarus are in the presence of God. John, next to Christ, leaning against his bosom, I think both these guys are in the presence of God. Because there's no such thing as purgatory. I don't see any biblical validity for uh, uh, soul sleep, some would say. I don't, see there's, I don't think there's any, some, any kind of place that you could prove there's some kind of holding tank in heaven. That's not the point of this parable. The point of the parable is there's going to be people. People are listening. There's going to be people in hell who didn't expect to be there. That's the purpose of the parable. Jesus is talking to the religious Pharisees. He's not just warning them but really, there's a shocking reversal into the story that's really shattering the Jewish religious leaders' sensibilities. And Jesus is destroying their carefully constructed, uh, improper theological position. They believe that if in life things were going well for you, then you were blessed of God. And if you were not doing well in life, then you were cursed of God right? If you're well, then God's blessing you. If you're poor, then God is against you. You've obviously done something wrong in your life, and God's, God's again punishing you. The hearers would regard the suffering of this man, Lazarus, as just, and obviously he's done something against God, and God is just punishing him, and he's just getting what he deserves. Now, the shocking point of the story is there's nothing laid out in the text that says the rich man was any kind of a great sinner, and the rich man, when he enjoyed life, uh, he had every earthly advantage, uh, just exactly like the Pharisees were having at the moment. They were enjoying uh, every earthly advantage. And in the story, the shocking thing is this guy's going to hell. The rich man's going to hell. Just like the Pharisees are going to hell. And then this is like, you know, th that's what's going on here. Th th this is what Jesus is speaking to. The rich man, he's humiliated, he's abandoned, he's without hope. 
he's going to be reduced to the place where he's begging for a drop of water from a poor man Lazarus. In the context, here's the theological phrase that you need to put in your, write this down someplace. This is the theological phrase for this story. This story is blowing the minds of the religious leaders. That's the word. Blowing their minds. They're going, what? Right? It's blowing their minds. Because it's going against everything they would assume theologically. That's the point of the parable. Besides this, there's between you and us a great gulf fixed in order that uh, uh, these who wish to come over from there to here may not be able to do so. None can cross over from here to us. And he said, uh, then I beg you, Father, that you send uh, him to my father's house and Lazarus to my father's house. I have five brothers that they may warn them lest they come to this place of torment. Verse 29, but Abraham said they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. So again, in the story that Jesus is uh, making up here, he's saying they have the Old Testament scriptures because that's what Moses and the prophets refer to. It's just an affirmation of the sufficiency of the scripture. The reason the rich man and the brothers are unregenerate, unbelieving reprobates in, in, in danger of hell is because they don't believe what the word of God says. Right? They don't believe what, what God says, uh, what God's word says in the first place. And I said it this morning, it's always true. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, right? For the Word of Christ. Uh, 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 Romans 10, verse 17. So the rich man is in hell forever because he, not because he lacked information, but because he ignored the message. Right? There was available to him salvation through the Messiah that's coming. Right? He didn't believe God. Likewise, his brothers are not going to escape hell unless they listen to the message of the gospel, repent and believe. Now here we see there's two reasons why in this parable Jesus gives a name to the poor man. Two reasons, verse 30. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes from the dead, they will repent. Uh, again, verse 31, he said to them, They do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Well, what happens just a little bit later? What happens in just a few months after Jesus tells this parable? It's chapter 11 in the book of John. What happens in the chapter 11 of the book of John? A real story, not a parable, but a real story just a few months later again. Jesus goes to Bethany, the hometown of a good friend named Lazarus, who's what? Dead. He's been dead in the tomb for four days. John 11, verse 43 says that Christ called him back to life. Uh, the miracle was without question. It was undeniable. Everybody who was there knew that Jesus called Lazarus from the, from the tomb back from the dead. Everybody knew that Lazarus had been dead physically for four days. There's no denying the miracle, no denying the reality. Yet while some believed, there were some who did not believe. Some took their eyewitness report back to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are now going to plot the murder, not only of Jesus, but the murder of Lazarus. You read that a little bit further on in chapter 11 and then in chapter 12. Why does he give the name Lazarus in the parable? Because there's some people who think they're going to be in heaven that are actually going to be in hell. He gives the name Lazarus because in just a few months later, he literally, physically, right, raises somebody from the dead. He says, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. He raises Lazarus of Bethany from the dead. They don't believe. They want to kill him. They want to kill Lazarus. Oh, yeah, not only that. Second reason, when Jesus rises from the dead, by his own power, the religious leaders of Israel are not going to believe. Right? They're going to concoct a lie that denies the resurrection. Because the truth is, miracles have no 
special power to convert the heart. That's why the charismatic movement is such, uh, is so wrong in the direction they go. They think if we can show God miraculous, people are going to get saved. No, miracles have no effect on the human heart. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. That's it. It's a proclamation of the gospel. They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Even if somebody rises from the dead, Lazarus of Bethany, Jesus Christ, they're still not going to believe. Here's the coup de grace. Here's the last point. You're going, man, thanks. The parable, again, of Lazarus and the rich man is not teaching anything about the place of the dead. It's teaching, again, the reality, the shocking truth that there are going to be many men, just like these Pharisees, that unexpectedly find themselves in hell. Here's the last point. For those who want us to believe that Jesus descended into hell, that he had to, leave, uh, had to let free captive Old Testament saints who are held uh, there in this realm of death until he came and set them free. Right? There's some kind of special compartment where Old Testament a righteous dead are gathered and have to be set free by Christ. There's a problem. Guess where it's at? It's in Matthew chapter 17. I knew you were thinking that just like I was. Matthew chapter 17. Here's a little bit of a problem. You waited an hour and a half to get to this verse. You are good. Matthew 17. What are we talking about? We are in the time of the Mount of Transfiguration. Matthew 17, verse 1. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and his brother, and brought them up to the high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. Verse 3. And behold... Moses and Elijah appeared to them, walking with them. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you will uh, make three, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Verse 5, while I was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I will please listen to him. Here you have Moses and Elijah appearing at the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter, James, and John, they all recognize them. Therefore, this is proof that Jesus Christ did not have to descend to the place of the dead to set free Old Testament saints or taking captivity captive, those righteous dead uh, who were saved but couldn't leave the place <coughs> of the dead until their sins had been atoned for and Jesus went and rescued them. Why is that proof? Because these guys are right here right now. And they all recognize them. This is before the crucifixion. This is before the resurrection. Right? These Old Testament saints, these Old Testament righteous saints are with them. These men were not locked up into some kind of compartment that needed to be freed from. And they're intimately familiar with Christ. They're partakers of his glory. Uh, they're knowledgeable enough of his earthly work that they can enter into discussion of the details of what he's about to do. It is a fascinating portion of Scripture, and it blows out of the water, in my opinion, uh, this whole idea once and for all. There's no intermediate state. These men are right there. There's no intermediate compartment for Old Testament saints have to be set free from. So I would say with most graciousness, there's very little, if any, biblical support, again, in my opinion, for the descent of Christ into hell. In fact, there are some texts that apparently deny the possibility of Christ going to hell after his death. Thief on the cross, I know that's in your mind, thief on the cross, Christ said, today you'll be with me in paradise, right? Luke 23, verse 43 implies that Jesus' soul or his spirit goes immediately in the presence of the Father in heaven, that his body is going to remain in the earth uh, as he's buried. 
Paul uses the same word paradise in 2 Corinthians 12, 4, when he said he was caught up into paradise. He makes a reference to himself about that back in verse 2. He says that was heaven. Revelation 2, verse 7, the word paradise is used again. It's the place where the tree of life is, which is in clearly in heaven. You see that in Revelation 22, verse 2 and 22, verse 14. Before Jesus died in John 19, 30, says it is finished. So at that moment, all of his suffering is over. The alienation from the Father is being the sin bearer is done. There's no more suffering that he has to go through. He's not going to have to go to descend in hell, uh, to the place of hell. Uh, and, and in fact, when he gives up his spirit, he says, uh, Luke 23, verse 46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Same welcome that uh, 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 Stephen expected at his martyrdom, that he would be welcomed into heaven, Acts 7, verse 59. So here's the uh, answer. Here's the question. Where was Jesus for the three days between his death and resurrection when his body was in the grave? Put it in the words of Paul in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, absent from the body is to be where? Present with the Lord. He's in the presence of the Father. Until he left heaven and came back and got his body because he's promised to raise physically from the dead. So, so I'm not personally convinced that the doctrine of uh, the descent is a biblical one. I do think, however, that bringing up the issue helps us to realize that when Jesus died, he really died. He went into the ground just like all men go into the ground because his death was that of a, of a true man. And I think the issue is important to consider because it teaches that at death, Jesus personally, thoroughly experienced death just as every human being does, every human will. Jesus dies a real death, experiences the same thing that everybody will experience connecting with death or connected with death. Now, we don't know what death is like, obviously. Therefore, there's a certain fear. I mean, we have a certain confident hope that Christ defeated death, we're going to come out. But there is a certain fear of the unknown. But that fear gives way to confidence when we know that whatever happened to us when we die, Jesus went there first. It happened to him first. And because Jesus has been there, we're going to walk in the same path that he walked. And we have a confident hope in him. Just as Jesus was not abandoned to death, therefore we have confident hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we're not going to be abandoned to the realm of death. I told you earlier, that I think it was this morning I said this, because of Jesus Christ coming out of the tomb, everyone's coming out of the tomb. I don't care if you're a believer or unbeliever. Because of Jesus Christ coming out of the tomb, everyone's coming out of the tomb. You go, where in the world do you get that from? Answer, the Bible. Go ahead. The Bible. That's where I get most of my answers from. I sometimes look at the back of cereal boxes, but that doesn't help me at all. <laughs> the Bible. John 5, 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming. It's Jesus speaking in case you forgot. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming. And now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear shall live. The dead will hear, all the dead, will hear the voice of God, and those shall hear will live. Verse 28, John 5, verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to the resurrection of judgment. There are only two eternal destinies for all men a literal place of literal eternal torment of, for the unrighteous where Christ repeatedly warned people should not go or a place of eternal, present, eternal blessing in his presence. 
And that's the great hope that we have because of Jesus Christ. He's won victory for us over sin, death, the devil. And we have confident hope because Jesus Christ really died. Jesus Christ really lived. We will not be abandoned to the place of the dead. All right? There you go. Our Father in God, we're so thankful for this uh, time in the Word. I know it's a lot, but what an important topic to consider and to try to consider it biblically. And we thank you for the opportunity to do that. Thank you for these dear folks and their uh, kindness uh, to, to listen. And, and I pray it's an encouragement to their hearts because it really is an encouraging uh, truth. Uh, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Uh, no matter what men write, no matter what men say, our, our uh, uh, hope is found in your word. So help us to be good students of your word and, and to hold on to it uh, carefully. Thank you for the day of worship we had. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.